that's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. When I'm back on top, back on top in June, I said that's life. In the States, at least, comic book films have become so big that they are now their own genre. You know, when I was younger, that wasn't a genre. We had comedy and drama and horror, and but now comic books is actually its own genre. But, and while there's been some incredible work done in that space, they always felt cut from the same cloth in that they were very big and event and CGI spectacles to some extent, and we just kept thinking, or I was thinking at the time, what would it be like to really strip strip it all down and do and do a really intimate character study, a, a deep dive kind of handmade movie uh, where you explore one of these characters um, in an intense way. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. I'm gonna go straight onto it with this episode. Sorry, it's been a while. Some personal issues took over and I've been a little bit busy, so it's always nice to be back recording. So this is gonna be an episode on Joker. It was somewhere around the 16th hour of Avengers Endgame that I realised me and comic book films had come to an end. Yes, they had been fun at times, and yes, I kind of cared about some of the characters, Captain America, Spider-Man, and of course Tony Stark, but in truth it was all a bit too much for the 40, now 40-year-old 40 me to take. I looked around at the young audience who were in the cinema with me and realised for these poor young pups this was it, this was cinema to them. And my mind began to wander back to where it all begun. And in retrospect, 2008's Iron Man, the film that really started the Marvel behemoth, was a rather small twee affair, biggish budget, okay-ish hit. And it seemed to me a lot of people love Iron Man, who had before really not seemed to be that bothered by the character at all. But it was enough to ignite the superhero powder keg. And it created a franchise that has today never produced a financial dud. Indeed, anything less than $750 million for a Marvel film, what I think would raise an eyebrow. There's no way to ignore it. Marvel has become a cultural phenomenon. People simply cannot get enough of these films. And it's not just a studio, it's also become a type of film, a genre in its own right. They all have a certain look, a certain feel. And there's a safety in these films. Yes, they pass sometimes, but they can just be okay enough to hold one's attention. But whatever. I was well and truly done with them all. The Avengers was it for me. I had no interest in Captain Marvel and I haven't seen the new Spider-Man film either. Thanks for the memory, Marvel, but it was time to go. DC, on the other hand, has had a decidedly iffy output. I hated Man of Steel. I haven't gone back to it since I watched it and I will do soon, I think, just to kind of familiarise myself with it again. But Batman vs Superman just seemed very loud. Suicide Squad was awful and Justice League was... Meh. I actually skipped Aquaman, but I did kind of like Wonder Woman. But on the whole, DC, like Marvel, was just barely indistinguishable mega-budget spectacles that made the masses flock to the multiplexes in their droves. In short, I felt superhero movies had become the industry and the new film culture, and it was one that, for the time being at least, I was quite happy to pass on. But I still read comics, and I love the fact that everyone at my work thinks I'm a complete twat for still doing so. 
And the one thing you find from reading comments is you realise there is an entire universe of stories waiting to be told that deviate from the standard big spectacle nonsense that we've become so accustomed to. Where I wondered was the vision, the risks, and this passing up on such interesting possibilities. The Marvel films had become beacons of sorts of progressive politics. Arise Black Pamphlet, easily one of the weakest films in the entire canon, yet one would think it was the second coming of cinema. All hail its achievements, at last superheroes films were being about black people were being made by black people. I personally thought it was rubbish, it looked cheap and was a fairly run-of-the-mill rehash of the Thor-Loki dueling brothers storyline. Yet whether it was a good film or not, it didn't seem to matter to anyone. We were supposed to love it just because of what it represented. I didn't bother either with Captain Marvel, but there was a familiar line here. It was good because of what it represented. Who actually cares about its relative aesthetic merits? It's a superhero film with a woman in the lead role. We should all rejoice, therefore. And as the film soared above the billion dollar mark, the woke outputting of joy that these game-changing feats of art were being lapped up by the masses, finally it seems showed me that ma mainstream Hollywood could do race and gender, and this was a new era of film for us all. Except for many of us, it was a tragic reminder of how banal, how dull and how thoroughly uninteresting mainstream films have become. Where I wandered in the Avengers universe was the sex. Where was the Han and Leia falling in love type stuff? Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman dared suggest that its lead character might have a bit of a thing for Chris Pine in the film. To be frank, she gives him a good old-fashioned perv, and it seemed to be quite an honest moment in a superhero film where we could actually see a character who has a twinge of sexual awakening for a member of the opposite sex. And of course, there's always that other issue I found with superhero films, the complete lack of peril. If a character dies, it's fairly safe to assume they can either be brought back by some kind of magical device, or we can just do a prequel so we can have them back into the cinematic world. And again, these aren't films which are being made for me anymore, and I have to really kind of accept that. And I've got nothing against people having fun with them. And of course, as well, running alongside this, we had the Netflix superhero series, the Jessica Jones, Daredevil and the like, Luke Cage. And I barely made it through any of them. I found them slow, repetitive. And yes, they were kind of the opposite, really, of the kind of lavish spectacle that we had become accustomed to. But I, to be honest with you, found most of them to be completely dull. So, enter then Todd Phillips with his new film, Joker. Now I have to confess I have not seen any of his previous films, I skipped the Hangover trilogy and the others I have absolutely no idea about. Telling however, Phillips recently said that he'd stopped making comedies because of woke culture and in a way I think it's hard not to see why he would come to that decision. In an age where people literally trawl through old Playboy articles so they can cancel John Wayne or demand comedians avoid certain subjects in order to be more inclusive. These are indeed strange times that we live in, where potentially one could ruin their career forever from one perceived misstep. So with Joker it seems Phillips was making his first real attempt to step into the world of serious filmmaking. The question one asks themselves is, does, really, does Phillips really have anything worth saying? Certainly to the reaction to the film indicated plenty of people had something to say about it. Joker comes with an inbuilt instant dislikability factor. It's about a troubled white male. I recently watched a political video by the Liberal Democrats who seem to consider the biggest threat to Western democracy to be lone white males. And it seems angry white men are the most likely suspects in any social disorder. You also have the 
Age of the Incel, a bizarre and frankly baffling group who have become ostracised from finding romance with members of the opposite sex on the basis that they are apparently just men and not complete assholes. And although this represents a tiny, almost insignificant minority, the coverage of them would seem to suggest that this is some form of large or endemic problem. I can't even be bothered to going into the realms of toxic masculinity and the like, but The Joker, it seemed, was a perfect film for a preemptive backlash. And I'm not even sure if these were hoaxes or not, but I'm sure I saw images in cinemas saying that lone males were banned from attending screenings on its opening weekend. And the media seemed to be wanting something to happen to make the narrative they had constructed to be true. Here would be an evil film for white males to flock to, to find validation in, and then they enact their evil manifestos of hate and violence against the world. So of course it didn't happen much to everyone's collective disappointment, yet it didn't seem to stop of seriously increasingly vitriolic articles about the film. The Guardian helpfully enlisted some doctors to tell us that the film's portrayal of mental illness was harmful. Peter Bradshaw invoked Milo Yiannopoulos, an unfunny walking meme, as proof that the film was shallow. And I also noticed many critics seemed to forget that this was not Heath Ledger's Joker, it was a different one. Yet the fact it wasn't Heath Ledger playing the Joker seemed to make this film somehow pale into insignificance. So I went into Joker as open-minded as possible, and I thought I would find a middle ground within the film, between the overly negative and the positively glowing. So one cold, wet Friday evening I shuffled into the cinema, open-minded yet somewhat cautious. And for good and bad, I've not stopped thinking about the Joker since. It's a tough time in Gotham. People feel very disconnected and they distrust each other. And I think Arthur is somewhat a product of that. Can you please stop bothering my kid? Sorry. When you make a movie about one person, every other element becomes a character, if that makes sense. So the music is suddenly a character and the locations are suddenly a character, and the setting, uh, the, the time period, all those things have a much bigger impact, I've noticed, when it's a movie about one person. And uh, so we always saw when we were writing Gotham as a broken down city, a city on the brink, um, where um, Arthur could inhabit and feel that world crumbling around. Joker introduced us to the world of Arthur Fleck, and Gotham and quickly establishes that the latter is partly responsible for the former. Set in early 80s, Gotham is a trash pile, literally. Rubbish has gone uncollected for months and supersized rats are feeding on the scraps. A mayoral election is coming with one of the lead candidates being one Thomas Wayne, mourn him later, and this is no Thomas Wayne we have seen before. And the aesthetics of Joker are quickly established. This is a grim film to watch. Think The French Connection, Taxi Driver, Marathon Man. And Gotham in the Batman universe is often a Rorschach test for the culture. Christopher Nolan in his latter Dark Knight films showed us a clean, financially affluent Gotham being blown apart by terrorists. This was the post 9-11 financial crash Gotham being punished for its rampant capitalism. Tim Burton's Gotham was its own gothic playground, a twisted fairy tale bonding with surreal and nightmarish. It was, as comic as comic could be, a notorious vision of the city from the imagination of Burton and his surrealist sensibilities. Todd Phillips comes at Gotham from the perspective of being a student of classic American cinema of the 1970s. Director of photography Lawrence Sharon Phillips have opted for the height of the 175 frame as opposed to the width of scope. 
the height of the frame often sees Flex dwarfed by the world around him, yet he never disappears into it. Phoenix's performance ensures that you cannot take his eye off him. Working for a clown agency, he's often dressed in large boots, his face made up, yet the Gotham residents of Gotham merely see him as a figure of abuse. Clowns more often than not are in today's light seen in slightly sinister ways. Joker reclaims the clown as a tragic figure, ostracised from the real world due to their unique skill sets and personality type. Fleck also has a rather unsettling psychological addition that causes him to laugh hysterically at inappropriate moments. He laughs insanely at a child, laughs at poor jokes with his clown collies, yet as soon as he stops laughing you see a deeply damaged and troubled soul. He's a good metaphor then for the grim visuals we see, worn out buildings, danger lurking around every corner and decaying interiors. Films like The French Connection show us that crime we see in them is related to the environments that gives rise to this type of individual who inhabits them, and despite some vague friendship with his colleagues, Fleck is often just part of the grime and detritus of the city. He is the trash, the nothing, and the film's visual palette constantly reminds you of Gotham's decay. It consumes him, it dominates him, and it moulds him. But Joker is also a very intimate film. Much of the framing is his close-up on Arthur Fleck, and we see him struggling with the central conceits of his life. Is it a tragedy or is it a comedy? His mother has told him that he was born to make people smile, yet Arthur is just met with bemusement and hostility everywhere he goes. And as we see in those close-ups, a window into his mind. He has to force his grin on his face, sticking his fingers into the corners of his mouth and making himself smile. Phillips holds a shot at certain times that seems more like self-harm, even Fleck sheds a tear, or, or whether this is pain or just his internal suffering, you're never really quite sure. As the film played out, I began to realise how good a performance this is from Joaquin Phoenix, however. To put it bluntly, his Joker is riveting, and of course the comparison will always be with Heath Ledger, who for many will simply be the Joker no matter what. Here though, Phoenix is playing someone else, I think, Arthur Fleck, and it's a huge distinction that needs to be made. Fleck is not some genius, he has no nemesis in the form of Batman to fight yet, instead this is a person tortured by reality. What is so unsettling is that you simply have no idea what Fleck is going to say or do next. There is no safety in prior knowledge of the character, we don't know this person, nor do we know what he's actually capable of. After being fired from the clown agency, Flex walks back into the change room and clocks out, and he does this by punching the clocking out machine off the wall. It's a genuinely unsettling moment, you feel for Fleck, and you understand what this job meant to him, but there's also a distance from him. To be frank, I was actually scared of this character. It's easy to make comparisons between Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy, yet Fleck is easily far more dangerous than either Travis Bickle or Rupert Pupkin. The film never lets you back away from Fleck, he is ever present there in front of you, and as soon as you get to witness his descent into madness, of which the starting position was hardly sane in the first place. Indeed, possibly the film would have worked better had this been a slightly more rounded and complete journey from a position of relative normality to Fleck we eventually see. Yet you do get stuck in an unrelenting cycle of gloom and misery. At every available turn, the film reiterates the fact that Fleck is a victim, abused as a child, a possible incestuous relationship with his mother, physically assaulted multiple times, bullied, harassed, shunned by everyone around him. Now, the film never convinced me that was an actual romantic connection with Sophie, a single parent who lives on Arthur's floor. I tweeted early on this was most likely fantasy and the reveal that it was just inside Fleck's head seemed to be simply another way the film wanted to turn the screws on the character even more. Besides, we can see Fleck and we are invited to be part of the society that mocks him. 
No one would go near him in a million years. People would treat him as an outcast, and we are part of that shunning it feels at times. Of course, Fleck is mentally damaged, and Joaquin Phoenix goes full-blown Hollywood method for the cause. Phoenix has transformed his body into a full hunchback skeleton. He is barely recognisable as a human at times, and Fleck looks more like he's in pain constantly, as if simply being is itself a daily agony of which he must endure, and endure I found myself having to do. Joker is literally hard to watch. Seeing Phoenix's spine, his bones sticking out, his haunched gait, and those vacant and dead eyes. What became clear as the film progressed was the pain you see on screen is offered to you without any form of absolution. It seems literally hopeless. Fleck writes in his journal of his desire to find infamy in his own death, as if society will actually care about him when he dies. We even have an earnest scene in which Fleck therapist tells him that their meetings must end due to cuts in funding. And every turn, society and the wider populace put Fleck further into his mental abyss. What I asked myself was the film really beginning to say in this regard. Now, the world does have people like Fleck in it. They shoot up schools, murder children, hunt minorities, and invariably they leave manifestos that are mere confused ramblings. And I've always thought that there's nothing that can actually be done for these people, despite all that society can offer, the warning signs that might be there, I have to come to believe that some people, no matter how much we try to help them, will always do unspeakable evil acts. You can throw all the money you want at it, but the fact remains, these people are out there. What we see in Joker is an example of a human being edged ever closer to some horrendous act, without any sense that there is a path available to him. And really I was wondering, did this actually make me feel quite sad? Was it a truth that I really in myself had come to accept? Seeing Phoenix on screen, the torture creation, that he has made, an uneasiness began to creep over me. I was starkly reminded that outside, in the very, very real world, there was a fleck just waiting to find infamy. Indeed, one of the reasons I waited to see the film was because hours prior to my first attempt to see it, a man had gone on a stabbing rampage in the Arndale shopping centre opposite the cinema I was going to see the film in. And yet, despite knowing all this, I don't think I like being reminded of the fact that people like Fleck are out there. In some regards, the film reminded me of those awful torture porn films that came out so many years ago. I got what they were trying to do, yet they seemed strangely hollow experiences to me. Violence for the sake of violence that didn't actually inform me of anything. The superficiality of the superhero film had began to bother me in time, and with the exception of the superb Winter Soldier, I always felt there was a lack of depth to most of them. Joker in its nihilism and misery didn't make me think much more than other than react viscerally to what I was actually seeing. Like what was the point in it all I began to wonder? Was it just a superficial shallow experience like so many of its kind? Yet there was a strange pull to the film. I found myself wanting it to provoke me, to make me think in a more deeper considered way. And this kind of happened at several times, however what appealed to me most was the cinematic aesthetics of it, its mise-en-scene, its compositions, the performances, the music. I was, I decided, engaging with it in terms of pure cinema. To a degree, this is a good thing, yet fundamentally it began to frustrate me. What did I really think about the Joker? Like, was this film actually worth the experience I was going through? By virtue of the performance by Phoenix, I was never bored by it, and indeed it had some legitimately thrilling moments of cinema. One affects friends at the clown agency he works gives him a pistol with which to defend himself and in a scene reminiscent of the tax driver fleck finds a sense of male empowerment with the pistol fantasizing about using it only for him to accidentally fire the weapon into the wall instantly he reverts to a child scared by his own action apologizing to his mother he bellows it to her off screen 
It's a bizarrely chilling scene. The comic book villain is typically, in most regard, a kind of perfect villain. They have no doubt on the rightness of what they're doing and typically are able to command with complete authority. Yet Joker creates a new dynamic. This is a villain, yet he's also a sympathetic one. Indeed, the film made me see him as a person, not a character. I know from so many previous incarnations. And Joker toys with DC canon further. An interesting recasting takes place in the form of Thomas Wayne. Gone is the virtuous Wayne that young Bruce looks so looks up to. Here we have an arrogant, rude, rich real estate mogul. And yes, one could say this is Donald Trump. But just before your eyes begin to roll, there is also a hint of the Hillary Clintons in there too. Possible mayoral candidate Wayne has called the masses of Gotham jokers for their ignorance and well-being poor. And this is very reminiscent of Hillary Clinton's deplorables comment. Wayne is seen as an amalgamation of two types of elites, liberal and conservative, with the masses, people such as Fleck, the downtrodden victims of institutional privilege. So when on the subway at night, three drunk Wayne Enterprise employees begin to hassle a woman, and Fleck suddenly produces a gun and murders all three. They're not people you are supposed to like. They're the worst type of drunk white asshole male. God knows I've seen them about after work on a Friday. So when they're executed, you're supposed to feel nothing for them because they're just getting what ultimately we sort of think they should. Aside from the brutality of it all, it's rather indicative of a possible lack of substance I was detecting in it. It seems so obvious, such an easy thing to do. He shoots three arseholes for being arseholes. We don't condemn him for it because we don't care that he did it. But really, it felt obvious to me, almost lazy. And in the aftermath of the murders, the general public act with nothing sort of glee. These men got what was coming. The Joker has now become a thing, a symbol, a point of celebrity worship. Dare I say, a piece of resistance. Here I found another interesting point of reference in the film. The masses that decide to go on the rise in Gotham seemed an amalgamation, and indeed nod to, the shocking levels of street violence that has pervaded America, mostly in the wake of the election of Donald Trump. On the one hand, you have a group of morons like the Proud Boys and various other patriotic movements, dressed like characters from Fortnite. And on the other side, you have annoying, whiny, so-called anti-fascists who declare anyone slightly right of centre to be the second coming of the Reich. Every week, these groups seem to meet and smash each other's heads in, forming one indistinguishable blob of political dogma. And they seem to be far more representative of reactionary politics, desperately seeking out an other to kick the shit out of. Arthur, when he kills those pesky bankers, inspires a similar type of movement. Yet what are its politics? Vigilanteism, anti-capitalism. These are people finding a new form of identity in groupthink politics. Again, the film hints, it suggests, it toys, but it was never overtly clear to me, if at all, really what it was actually saying at all. Todd Phillips really knows what he's got to say either. I don't see from this film anything, I don't see from his filmography any type of real political ideology, even though I will admit I've not actually seen any of them, but he doesn't seem to be someone who treads in that realm. And again, my mind began to wonder, was this film just a bunch of stuff? inconsequential things added simply to appear to be edgy and uncomfortable. Yet just when I thought the film was losing my interest, it would snap me back into it. Fleck's attempts at stand-up comedy results in a very public shaming from his hero talk show host, Franklin Murray, played by Robert De Niro. I was reminded part of Phoenix and Catholic Casey Affleck's films, I'm Still Here, a film I can't work out whether or not it's genius or just rather silly. During this, Phoenix apparent have, has a breakdown and the reaction of his peers in entertainment media is actually quite revealing. He is mocked, ridiculed, yet for all intents and purposes is actually pretending to have a nervous breakdown. Had it been real, 
What exactly was everyone playing at? Why mock someone who is so obviously unwell? Yet this is the age of shame culture, the slightest infraction you will find yourself being publicly ridiculed by a baying mob. And after his disastrous attempt at stand-up, Murray plays the clip on his show, and we know from a fantasy sequence that Flex sees Murray as the kind of father figure he never had. Here father then mocks son, he is not proud of him, he wants to actually ruin him even more. It's cruel, and is as cruel as cruel can be. But the film is setting us up to hate Murray, and when a researcher calls Fleck to appear on the show, he giddily agrees. From his diary we know that he has thoughts of killing himself, and our natural inclination is to believe that he will shoot himself live on air, network style. But at this stage in proceeding, Fleck has become an icon. The clown murders become a symbol of people fighting back against the establishment. And Murray, a rather unnecessary Robert De Niro in the role, is of course part of this establishment, sneering, mocking and mean. The film's major set piece revolves around Murray interviewing Fleck on air. Here the film's manifesto sort of comes to the fore. Fleck challenges him, asking why he's justified to be so cruel, and of course there is the inevitable. In the context of the film, you think fuck Murray as he had it coming, and in fairness the scene is utterly spellbinding, a grotesque spectacle in which the tension and awkwardness is ramped up to almost unbearable levels. Yet again, however, I found myself questioning the film's position. Yes, it's wrong, of course, to mock the likes of Fleck, but does that really mean people like Murray should die? What's the solution here? I'm fairly certain Joke is, isn't that a sophisticated a film. It's visceral, it's unpleasant, and I think it's trying to be that as opposed to actually saying anything more deeper and thoughtful. Much to the media's disappointment, the film hasn't inspired a host of copycat killings, and the answer should be fairly obvious. Films like The Joker don't make perfectly normal people go and do horrific things, nor do video games, nor do other violent films. Yet as a culture, we are obsessed with violence and, and its causes, yet seem unable to ever really figure out how to resolve these issues. Preferring instead to come to far more simplistic and easily digestible conclusions. As I left Joker, I emerged with a feeling I emerged into a cold, freezing Manchester evening. The rain was torrential and staggering through it was a person clearly high on the drug spice, mumbling to himself as he moved slowly towards the busy road. No one stopped and no one helped him, and I simply walked on, completely ignoring him. Sometimes films make you see the world in a slightly different way, and I find when I watched anything by Terence Malick, for example, I will always look at where the sun reflects through the trees and how sounds come and go. After I left Joker, I can't deny I didn't look at the world a little different. I, like everyone else, ignored the drug-addled man staggering around, and as I hurried to the train station, I recalled a conversation I'd had with my ex-girlfriend the day before, in which I told her it was best we didn't speak for a while, and thought how terribly sad it was we had split up in the first place. And then it rather dawned on me. Joker was a stark reminder that sometimes things just aren't okay, bad stuff does exist and happen, and that sometimes it is us that are the catalyst for this. I didn't like the feeling, but I began to consider something more. We leave Arthur Fett being chased around Arkham Asylum having murdered a care worker. It would seem he is irredeemably lost, and after I got home that night I looked at my phone and laughed at some nonsense a friend had sent me. Then a message from someone I was going on a date with. I decided the next day to go running and therefore would not have a drink that night and instead decided to watch football and chill out in the warm of my cats. I was, I realised, a happy person. I was going to book a holiday and enjoy planning it. Joker is a two hour window into the very darkest of places, yet it reminds me of the simple pleasures in life that one can take comfort from knowing despite its flaws, life is pretty good most of the time. And although it might have been an ordeal, Joker did seem like a good way of reconnecting with a more positive outlook on life, which perhaps had become slightly lacking to me in recent months.
So that's going to be it this episode of the 24 Frames cast. Many thanks for listening. I'll be back in contact soon. The Master of Cinema cast will also be returning very shortly. Sorry for the delay on, on both, but we will get back to normal recording soon. So many thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at 24 Frames Cast. You can find me on uh, 24framescast.blogspot.com and you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening and I'll speak soon. Bye.